This episode includes depictions of sexual assault, violence, and insect horror. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of Richard Marsh's The Beetle. Today's episode combines features from a number of Victorian period elements for dramatic effect. Hello everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Last week, we uncovered Bram Stoker's vengeful, mummified Egyptian, Queen Tara. Today, we'll meet her cousin, an ancient creature from Richard Marsh's The Beetle. Interestingly, Marsh's novel initially outsold another Stoker sensation, Dracula, when they were both published in 1897. It's easy to see why the two books were competitors. Both starred foreign villains with a supernatural ability to seduce and mesmerize. But while Dracula wants your blood, the beetle wants everything else. This is Mythical Monsters, Victorian Monsters. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we get caught in a beetle's nest. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. The Suez Canal was mostly built in the 1860s to connect the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. It was a massive project that created a lucrative international shipping corridor. Seeing its value, the British wanted in. And when a revolt nearly toppled Egypt's government in 1882, they saw an opportunity for control. Victory was swift and violent, leaving Egypt under British occupation for decades and in control of the Suez Canal. But with the possession of something so valuable comes the fear of losing it. 
This paranoia seeped into the era's literature, no doubt with some help from the Beatle. The horror novel centers on a powerful, mysterious Egyptian entity who attracts and controls British men with ease. This and the Egyptians' ever-changing gender were disturbing enough to the Victorians' imagination. Add in that this monster is also a shape-shifting insect, and the mere story becomes a nightmare. Robert Holt slipped and slid through the cold London rain, nearly dead on his feet. He'd been out of work nine months and without shelter for almost two. The workhouses were unreliable and the community wards were always full. No matter what he did or where he looked, he was met with defeat. His powerlessness was drowning him just as deeply as tonight's rain. But then he saw it, a great house in derelict disrepair with an unlocked garden gate and an open window. It was a lifeline. He hurried towards it. Holt climbed through the window and dropped quietly into a dark room. So dark it was more cave than house, and the space seemed to extend on forever. Before he could explore, something scurried across Holt's feet. It was large, very large, and spider-like, with a flurry of legs and a creeping, delicate touch. He tried to jump out of the way, but his body wouldn't respond to his commands. He was frozen. He could only stand there, panicking as the insect traveled up his leg, mounted his torso, and passed over his racing heart. Finally, it placed one cold insect leg against his lips. The clopping of a carriage horse thundered in the street outside. The pale light of the driver's lantern drew near. Holt's frozen vocal cords silently strained, trying to call for help. And as the light passed over the dark window, the insect's presence disappeared. Then came a voice. Keep still. Holt did not wish to. He wanted to flee this horrible place with every fiber of his being, and yet he still could not move. Turn round. Something made him do so. A candle lit ahead of him, revealing a small figure lying in a bed. He was as good a pronoun as any. His features seemed to shift in the flickering candlelight. A thin nose, then a thick one, a round face to a square. The only thing consistent were the eyes. They took up almost half the face, large and dark and glittering. The voice was commanding and elegant, the accent indeterminate, but Holt was certain this man was not from England. What is your name? Holt nervously replied, Robert Holt. The man in the bed laughed. Have you no home? Holt did not want to answer, but the word was ripped from his throat. No. Money? No. Friends? No. Undress. Holt did not want to, 
but he did. The wet layers peeled off of him, and he stood there, exposed and shivering, humiliated. The man in the bed didn't care. There is a cloak in the cupboard. Put it on. You will visit a parliamentarian tonight, Paul Lessingham. You will steal into his house, enter his study, and retrieve some vital papers from his desk. Holt had been reduced to nothing, but he refused to be a thief. I will not. The man leaned forward. There was a flirtation there that both intrigued and terrified Holt. You have no choice in the matter. Why fight it? Would it be so awful to serve me for an hour or two? Holt knew the man was right. There was no true resistance. Those dark eyes and that melodic voice were more compelling than Holt's own will. When he first entered this house, he'd thought he could sink no lower. But now even his own body didn't belong to him. Please, have mercy. The man gave him a pitying look. I am merciful, thief. I shall be with you all the way, offering guidance and protection. Oh, and if Lessingham appears, you must only say the beetle, and he will fall back with no resistance. A sound came from the darkness just beyond the candle's glow, thousands upon thousands of fluttering wings. As Holt's eyes adjusted to the shadows, he saw the walls were moving. Holt's stomach dropped as he realized that every surface was covered in carrion beetles. Their black carapaces shimmered in the candlelight as they crawled over each other, wings whirring. Holt tried to hide his fear. What do you want with Lessingham? The man's smile shone in the darkness. I want to do to him what I will do to you if you fail. Now go, thief. I will follow your every step. Holt's vision misted and his hearing dimmed. His feet moved without his say-so, guiding him through the window and into the street. The rain had let up, but Holt didn't notice. He walked as if in a dream through the foggy London streets. Finally, his legs halted before front steps that looked like all the other front steps. And yet an ethereal nudging inside his body told him this was the place. The house was dark, but for one small lamp on the second floor, a lower window was cracked, so Holt slid his fingers through the gap and lifted the pane. Holt slipped inside, finding himself in a study. His feet dreamily moved him to a desk, and his hand yanked open its drawer. Inside, a sweet scent of flowers wafted from a pack of letters tied with a ribbon. Holt's hand grasped them before he could think to. As soon as Holt took the letters, the fog lifted. The man in the bed had gotten what he came for, it seemed. What a strange creature wanted with love letters, Holt did not know, but that was not his business. He looked around, suddenly very aware that he was in someone else's home. 
But just as he was about to leave, the beam of a gas lamp illuminated his face. A powerfully built man stood in the study's doorway. He was still dressed in a vest and shirt sleeves, even at this late hour. It had to be Lessingham. Holt stammered an apology as he rushed to the window. Lessingham chased after him, grabbing Holt before he could leave. In a panic, Holt yelled, the beetle. There was a sudden rush of insect wings. Holt heard Lessingham's gasp and felt his arm released. He took his chance at freedom, diving out the window. Holt staggered out onto the street, letters still in hand. When he looked back, he saw Lessingham leaning against the glass, muscles clenched, weeping. The two locked eyes, and Lessingham's gaze sent Holt into a fit of shivers. He could feel Lessingham's deep, violent fear from where he stood. Just the word beetle had debilitated this man, and now Holt had to return to its lair. Coming up, the beetle expands its influence. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now back to the story. Holt trembled the entire way back to the Beatles' dark home. The fear came not from the journey, but the destination. He had done the strange creature's bidding, stealing a pack of what appeared to be love letters from the politician Paul Lessingham. And now he had to deliver them. He did not want to know what this creature would do to him if he didn't. Holt climbed in through the window of the dilapidated home near the park. It looked just as dingy as it had before, but smelled worse, like rot was setting in. The candle above the beetle's bed was still lit, but had burned down to a nub. The beetle spoke immediately. 
place the letters on the bed. Holt did so. The beetle licked his lips and snatched them up. You may go, thief. When I have need of you, you will know. Holt's voice shook. What do you mean? The beetle scanned the letters, those large eyes darting across the handwritten pages. You have done as I bid. Go. A deep sense of dread filled Holt. He could not forget the look of panic on Lessingham's face, a great man reduced to a gibbering mess. Holt wondered, what had he just set into motion? The beetle commanded again, go. This time, Holt went, even though he didn't want to. Holt walked 12 blocks to Paddington Station before the beetle released him. Commuters pushed by him with dirty glares. Holt didn't understand why at first, until he remembered he was still wearing nothing but a cloak. He gasped and drew it tightly around him, then ducked into an alley to compose himself. Now he was penniless and near naked. It was only a matter of time before a constable took him to Bedlam. He shamefully avoided the appalled glances of passersby, lamenting that no one understood what he was feeling. No one but Paul Lessingham. Holt was suddenly struck with an idea. They both knew what the beetle could do. Perhaps they could stop him together. It was a 30-minute walk through Hyde Park, and each step felt heavy and uncertain. Holt had no idea what Lessingham would do when he showed up. Holt was a wretch, a thief. He'd been caught red-handed in the politician's own home. Still, he pressed on. Holt was scared, rattled, and broke. But more than anything, he was tired of feeling helpless. When Holt reached Lessingham's steps, the door opened before he could knock. Lessingham stood before him, looking pale. You again? Holt blushed. I'm sorry to bother you, sir. Lessingham pulled Holt inside. There's no time for apologies. Edwards, get this man some clothes. We must go. A butler appeared, dressing Holt in gentleman's clothes with record speed. He'd barely finished buttoning Holt's vest when Lessingham dragged him out the door and into a waiting carriage. Lessingham yelled instructions to the driver, then turned to Holt. I'd hoped you'd come back. If Marjorie is in danger, you're the only one who can help. Holt was confused. Who is Marjorie? Lessingham handed him a picture of a beautiful woman with intelligent eyes and a sweet smile. My fiance, the woman whose letters you stole. At first I thought you'd been sent by her father who dislikes my politics, but when you uttered that name, he shivered. I saw the look in your eyes. You've seen her, haven't you? You've felt her. Holt was even more confused. She? It's a man, the beetle. Lessingham took another sip of brandy. It is as much a woman as a man, both and neither. But perhaps I should explain. Holt nodded. Please do. Lessingham took a deep breath. 
When I was 18, back before the war with the Egyptians, I visited Cairo as an assistant to a professor of mine, Abel Trelawney. He sought something we did not find, a so-called Valley of the Sorcerer. The failure set Trelawney in a foul mood, so I retreated to a club in the part of town frequented by locals rather than tourists. A live band played all night. Their lead singer sang in every language, staring into my eyes with a hunger I dreamt of satisfying. We ended up drinking and talking the night away. She told me much about herself and her faith. Her god, she said, was one of the old gods, Isis. It is she, the woman said, who allows death and rebirth. As the woman spoke of Isis, her fingers clasped around my wrist, just over my pulse. Her grip was strong, too strong. The sudden control set me on edge, and I got up to leave. I don't remember what happened next. Only that I awoke in a chamber deep underground. There was an idol of Isis, covered in glittering scarabs of every color. The whole cave echoed with the flutter of wings. Robed figures bowed and danced. An acrid smell filled the air. And the woman, the singer, was there. I do not know what she wanted with me. All I know is that for months, I could not move. I just lay there at her whim. She whispered that I was hers forever and always. And that meant everyone I loved was hers as well, forever and always. <sighs> she showed me horrible things beneath that idol, unspeakable crimes against screaming women. Their pain was ended in fire and ash. Sometimes my captor participated in these rituals. Other times she laid beside me and watched. One night she lit the flames herself, reveling in the screams. When she collapsed beside me, somehow her mesmeric powers slipped just for an instant. I felt the slightest give when I resisted, so I took my chance. I grabbed her by the neck and held on. Her eyes glowed. She thrashed and coughed. I closed my eyes. I could feel her life leaving her. Then her soft skin became hard and cool. I heard the fluttering of wings. When I opened my eyes, there was a monstrous beetle in my grip. I let the thing go and ran. The beetle followed. But miraculously, a sliver of sunlight shone into the chamber, striking the idol of Isis, and the beetle could not venture into the searing heat without harming itself. So I climbed the statue, higher and higher until I reached the lip of the cave. With one last push, I pulled myself up and into the desert sun. Holt was wrapped with attention as Lessingham finished his tale. Some kind souls found me and brought me back to Cairo. I returned to England and agreed to follow my family's chosen path for me, and here I am. But she, it, has found me again, just as it promised. And I know it means to punish me by hurting the one I love, Marjorie. If only I'd stopped it. 
Holt wished he could console Lessingham, but he didn't know what to say. He once again felt quite helpless. A painful silence set in. Both men were rescued by the carriage lurching to a stop. Lessingham bounded out and rushed up the steps of what Holt presumed was Marjorie's home. Holt watched as the politician frantically consulted with a dour man in a gray suit at the door. Lessingham's shoulders fell. He hurried back to the carriage, pale with panic. Marjorie is missing. I am certain the beetle has her. Coming up, time is running out to escape the beetle's jaws. Now back to the story. Holt wanted to help Lessingham find his fiancée, Marjorie, not just for the heroics, but also because it was his only chance at freedom. He needed to know that the creature who made him feel so small, so helpless, could be destroyed. But Lessingham insisted the only way to do it was for Holt to lead him to the monster's lair. And the thing was, Holt suddenly couldn't remember anything about his meeting with the beetle. It was raining, or it wasn't, and it was near Paddington, give or take 20 blocks? 15? Holt could tell Lessingham was disappointed, but the great politician pushed on. Then we shall search on foot, see what you remember. He guided Holt out of the carriage and onto the rain-soaked street. Take your time, old boy, but also hurry up. Holt closed his eyes and tried to remember. The sensations came first, cold rain on his skin, sliding inside that threadbare cloak, fog chilling his nose. But that had been the trip to Lessingham's the first time, hadn't it? Lessingham hovered beside him, waiting eagerly for him to speak, but it was fruitless. It's all obscured, sir. I'm sorry. Lessingham shook his head. No, no, you can do this. You must try. Holt fought tears. I am trying. You don't understand. But his voice trailed away as he felt a tug against his coat, imperceptible yet powerful. He'd done it. He'd drawn out a lead. But then Holt's jaw locked and his mind grew foggy. He realized he hadn't drawn anything. The beetle had drawn him. His feet moved forward of their own accord again. No, no, this couldn't be happening. Not again. Or had it always been happening? Maybe his escape was an illusion, a simple ploy to draw Lessingham in and torture them both. The beetle could have heard every word they said. Lessingham's voice sounded far away. No need to fight it, my friend. I'm with you. We will do this together. He felt the politician fall in behind him. And so, Holt allowed the beetle to guide him through London's rainy streets. He couldn't feel the drops. He couldn't feel his feet. All he felt was a rising, furious terror. He hadn't wanted to be a part of this. In fact, what did he owe a man like Lessingham, who did nothing for the downtrodden like him? All he cared about was Marjorie. Would Lessingham even care about Holt if she didn't exist? 
The beetle might be strange, but he cared. She cared. She, his beloved, would welcome him with open arms when they reached... The train. That was where they were going. She, he, she, whatever he wanted was waiting for Holt on the train. Together, they would return to Cairo. Holt's vision cleared just for a moment. He was standing in front of a train car, his face almost pressed against its window, and through its glass was Marjorie. She sat very still, her vision vacant and glassy. In the seat next to her was the man from the dilapidated house, his eyes glittering and dark. He smiled at Holt. The Beetle. Holt vaguely heard Lessingham's voice call to him, but now Holt knew that Lessingham didn't need his help. The Beetle did. Holt was his knight in shining armor, a hero. All Holt needed to do was get into that train car. Holt heard the crunch of the train wheels moving. It was leaving. No! He looked for a door, but they were all closed. He broke into a run. He couldn't be left behind. He couldn't live without the beetle's perfect eyes. A train whistle shrieked and picked up speed. It was leaving, and Holt couldn't do a thing about it. He was helpless. Again, he screamed in agony. Suddenly, his scream was drowned by a screech of metal, then a monstrous crash. Holt's ears rang, his mind's fog cleared, and panicked shouts punctured his fugue. The station's air was thick with sand and dust. When it parted, what Holt saw stopped his heart. A train had somehow derailed as it tried to leave the station. The front car was entirely upside down. Blood dripped out its window. Holt didn't understand, but then he remembered. The beetle was on the train in the compartment with Marjorie, the same compartment that was upside down, smoking and crushed. Had this tragedy freed him from his thrall? He heard Lessingham's voice nearby, calling out Marjorie's name. The politician was already at the overturned car, trying desperately to pry open its door. Holt rushed over to help. As he approached, Holt saw the car's windows were smudged with blood and, well, he wasn't sure, but it looked disgusting, bile or something. He joined Lessingham and they pushed together at the stuck door. Lessingham grew more frantic by the minute. Holt could see him slipping back to that cave in Egypt. All semblance of his control over the world was falling away again. Finally, the door fell inwards with a clang. An acrid smell assaulted their noses, like an insect crushed beneath a boot. Bloody rags lay about. The dark blood and strange gunk Holt had seen from outside the car covered every surface. And in the corner was Marjorie. She lay still, her body slumped and broken. Lessingham ran over and placed his ear next to her lips. She's breathing. Thank God she's breathing. He lifted her carefully. 
I'm sorry, my dearest, but it's over now. Holt helped clear the debris so they could leave the car together. Marjorie clung to Lessingham as he carried her. Holt suddenly felt awkward, caught somehow, as if his and Lessingham's time together was something to be ashamed of. He leaned into Lessingham. I should go assist other passengers. Lessingham began to nod, but he paused as a soft, melodic voice came from Marjorie's limp form. No, please, Mr. Holt, stay. I could use your help. Holt stammered his reply. Oh, oh no, miss, your fiancé is plenty capable. Marjorie lifted her head to look at Holt over Lessingham's shoulder. She had such striking eyes. They took up almost half her face, large and dark and glittering. Come now, Mr. Holt. Would it be so awful to serve me for an hour or two? At its heart, the beetle is a shapeshifter. It moves from a beautiful woman singer to a charismatic man and back again. It mesmerizes its victims regardless of its appearance, creating tremendous unease in characters like Holt, who finds himself both attracted to and terrified by its presence. Non-consensual touch is a major aspect of the beetle's threat in Richard Marsh's original novel. The beetle dwells on both Holt's and Lessingham's helplessness and humiliation. But Marsh frames Holt's encounters with the beetle's masculine form using more violence and far more detail. This is perhaps in part due to the fact that homoeroticism was seen as an imminent threat to Victorian society, and the period's public could be lethal in its protection of social norms. Just two years before the Beatles' publication, Oscar Wilde was put on trial for sodomy after news of his affair with a British diplomat was revealed to the public. But the Beatle is not one to be stopped by cries of shame or any mortal punishment. Like the Egyptian scarab, it lives and dies and lives again, growing from death itself. A glistening carapace born in a rotting corpse. You see, beetles feast on the dead, just as Marsh's beetle consumes the last vestiges of Victorian respectability, bite by bite. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another Victorian monster. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jen Riche, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.